This is Watch the Media. I'm John Schrader. We're joined now by Mike Wojtala, who is the executive editor of Soccer America. We check in with Mike every once in a while to see what's going on. And what a perfect time, I think. The summer before the World Cup is to be played in uh, Qatar or Qatar. Uh, Mike, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. So what happens in the middle of the summer before they play a World Cup in November? Oh, they don't usually play the World Cup in November. So what happens to the, the team, the media and others in this kind of crazy cycle? You know, I was just telling someone that I kind of wish soccer had an offseason. I, I, I appreciate the fact that there's so many interesting things happening in soccer. But I, there's no other sport that just never takes a break. You know, we had the under 20 men's CONCACAF um, championship, which was qualifying for the Olympics and the U-20 World Cup. We've got the women in the middle of their qualifying. Uh, we just got off some men's national team games. You have the less significant, um, you know, big European clubs touring to, to, to make money in America. Um, there's really never a break. The big difference, obviously, this summer is we're supposed to have a World Cup, but because of the uh, weather in Qatar, uh, that'll be in November. Usually it's the it's the leagues like Major League Soccer in America who have to sort of change their schedule to meet the summertime or late summertime or early fall World Cup. Now the rest of the world has to rearrange, but normally it's something that Major League Soccer's had to deal with since it's a it's inception, right? Yeah, that's a good point. I do believe that it's best for an American soccer league to play through the summer because of things like the weather and when other major sports are, are active. Um, obviously, other countries have other sports, but not like the United States, where you've got so many major sports going on. The, I mean, it's a good point. I didn't think about it that much, but you're right. The World Cup has always been a bit of an inconvenience for MLS, and, and the only inconvenience this time was they started in February and that they'll end a little bit earlier. It is also interesting that there won't be as much prep time for uh, the World Cup. I believe MLS Cup will be like two weeks before the World Cup starts, and the leagues that are taking a break won't take, in, the, in Europe, won't be taking a, you know, won't get off, won't stop until, you know, very close to the World Cup. I don't think that's a big deal, like like they might say, because you might remember in 1992 when Denmark um, ended up winning the European Championship when they were a late replacement for Yugoslavia and they had to call guys in from the beach and everything. So they didn't go through all this like six weeks and methodology and everything, and then they won the whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's always a, a, an excuse or reason. Is the U.S. now with the young players they have? I think a lot of people think maybe in 26 they'll be even better. But has is this potentially the best group of players the U.S. has ever had? Potentially, I think the only ingredient missing is. I, I like the youth. I like the fact that they're playing young players. Um, but if you look historically at teams that do very well at a World Cup and win a World Cup, they've got young players, they've got players in their prime, and then they've got some veterans, um, you know, for that kind of experience. So this team doesn't have that balance. It's pretty interesting that, you know, I guess Walker Zimmerman would be a elder statesman at about, uh, I think he's just turned 29. But so I do think they're not in the perfect kind of situation but you know that the pressure isn't that i do believe there's pressure for them to get out of the second round i think the reasonable goal for the u.s is to get to the quarterfinals you know and, and i do believe that that is a possibility with this team 
And in 2026, the World Cup is in mostly the U.S., but also in Mexico and Canada. And these players will be another four years older and probably even greater expectations on them. Is it unrealistic to think if the world doesn't um, fall apart between now and then that the U.S. could be a serious contender in four years? I think so. One thing that's very interesting is the number of young players who are turning pro at such a young age in major league soccer. And then also, I, you know, some of them who go, I think, I think the outliers, I think Pulisic and Gio Reyna are kind of the outliers who go straight to Europe. Um, you know, it seems like a smart path to, to, to start in an MLS and go, but even those guys are going very young. Um, it's almost hard to keep track of how many young players are showing potential. That team that qualified for the, uh, U20 World Cup in uh, in the Honduras tournament that was a double qualification with the Olympics. Um, that was a good team with the players that really looked like that a lot of potential and um, you know that wouldn't have included about six players who, who had already moved on to the national team and perhaps very significant is that we've had for you know decades players who've gone to Europe and, and played for some of the better teams but we really haven't had players who are attacking creative type players who have done that um you know you've got a Gio Reyna unfortunately he's been injured but um you know if you got a Pulisic you have a lot of these young kids who it, it's not like the past where yeah okay we could have a good defensive midfielder a good defensive um, center central defender um I, I do believe we're really starting to produce the kind of players we were always wanting to see those those creative players with a, with a knack for improvisation so in turn does the rest of the world take United States American soccer more seriously than we know they might have not done so in the past? I think so. I mean, I don't know how we like to do the whole underdog, we don't get respect thing, but I, I do believe the U.S., you know, American soccer has, has had a, you know, before the before the failure in, in 2018, we were one of the few countries that had been to every World Cup since the 90s, and not that we tore it apart, but um for sure, for sure, having players, uh, you know, having a, a Christian Pulisic on a Champions League uh, championship team, um, you know, there's no doubt that that people are looking at that. Uh, there's no doubt that every single player who is breaking into MLS in their teens is being watched by foreign clubs. Um, American players are very attractive you know, to foreign clubs. So um, for sure, I think one thing that we kind of forget sometimes is that while while American soccer improves, so does so does soccer in other countries, right? Um, when we lamented the fact that oh we you know we we got upset by Trinidad and we didn't qualify in 2018, you look at the countries like Costa Rica and, and Jamaica, they all improve. Everybody improves. You know that's just a natural thing. So um, we're not going to leapfrog anybody real quickly, but certainly um, the signs are there that we could finally be a you know among the the contenders. So the World Cup cycle goes from Russia, might have been a little corruption there, goes to Qatar, there might have been a little corruption there among FIFA in their decision making. Uh, I think I know the answer to this, but what's the decision making um, uh, on the part of FIFA to play in the USA, Mexico and Canada? Well, the, you know, the World Cup, this World Cup should have been the United States, I believe. Um, that that was obviously corruption. It was, you know, executive committee with anonymous voting um, in a country that had never qualified for the World Cup that, you know, you basically uses slave labor to build their stadiums and doesn't have a soccer history, et cetera, et cetera, can't host it in the, in the summer. Um, the, 
I think that the having the having Canada and Mexico, although I believe you know it's only ten games for them, the most of the World Cup will, will be here. I suppose that was something of a political thing. It'll be an expanded World Cup, so there's going to be more teams. Every single stadium that is going to be used for that 2026 World Cup is already built. You know, I mean, I, that, that I think is is fantastic because um, you see so many countries that build stadiums and then have these white elephants. You know, what 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 they did in Brazil was just you know a farce to build a stadium in a in a city that doesn't have a first division team and um, the economic impact of that. The other thing to remember about the United States is that. We are such a diverse, you know, such a diverse country that um, any team that comes here is going to already have support within the United States without even traveling fans. The World Cup in 1994, hosted by the U.S., still holds the record for the most fans ever to go to a World Cup, and that was with fewer teams. If you'll, you know, right, that was with 24 teams, and we've got these big stadiums already. You know, I remember Sunil Gulati used to say, you know, we could host the World Cup in, in a week, which is perhaps a little bit of an exaggeration, but not that much when you consider um, the kind of stadiums we have, thanks to whether it's NFL, college stadiums, soccer stadiums, and also um, so many of these stadiums now that are built by um, NFL owners have soccer in mind. And this isn't intended to be jingoistic, Mike, but um, the U.S. and sports, um, we have a history of doing these things really well. We have a history of making a, a big events um, feel special. And we, we're good at television. We're good at marketing. We're good at communication. We're good at just about everything that's required of this on top of the fact that all the stadiums are already built, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I you know, I think of the World Cup in Germany in 2006 that I was fortunate enough to go to, which was a terrific World Cup for a number of reasons. I mean, one was that they really put out the red carpet for media and, you know, <laughs> for, our, our media passes doubled as first class train, uh, 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 train passes and the German public transportation system was terrific even before that and they and they renovated and added to it, made it even more efficient. In Germany, you had a situation where fans from other countries, because of the uh, geography of Europe, could come for a game and go home. You know, you, you, ge geographically, that was terrific. Um, the United States will be more like a Brazil situation where um, it certainly be inconvenient and expensive for fans to follow their team. I don't know if you remember, uh, you mentioned earlier, I've been around for a long time. Back in the 90, 1990 World Cup, you would have Germany play five, you know, the, it, all its group games in Milan. And then if they won, they play another game in Milan and maybe a fifth. Um, the advantage of that was that fans wouldn't have to travel all over the country. Now in 94, you had a situation where you started moving teams around. So maybe they played two in Pasadena, another one in Chicago or something like that. The idea was that, okay, well, if Brazil's coming to a country, let's give other, play, other cities a chance to see Brazil, which sounds like a good argument. And then you have a World Cup in Brazil in 2014 where teams are traveling all over the place. And it seems pretty obvious the reason they're doing that is to, is to basically you know, make fans spend more money on, on transportation and hotels and that kind of thing, you know. I think some of the people around the world, though, may be a little frustrated, too, if they've never been here uh, with our public transit system in some places where games will be played, whether they're going to have to get in cars or buses or, you know, the fact is you don't have a subway system in Los Angeles that could move 
hundreds yeah, of thousands no, of people. Yeah, no, I mean, around, that's a, you know? I think that's one of the, I think it's, a, I think it's disgraceful that mm -hmm. the United States of America has a, you know, has public transportation that just in, in very rarely serves the kind of purposes that, that you should, you know, you should have. I mean, that's, a, um, I, you know, I, during a World Cup, you, people will manage one way or another um, and, um, you know, whatever, but I mean, you know, that, that's, a, that's a good point. I think we all know if we know, you know, people do love coming to the United States from other countries um, and, and they enjoy it. And there's a lot of things about the United States that are, that, that are really appealing to people. I mean, I'll, I know a lot of foreign friends and visitors and they love coming to the United States. Um, and I think they will really look forward to, to coming to the, to the World Cup. But for sure, um, you know, our lack of public tra transportation is an issue. And, you know, it's, it's like most sports, it, it, you have to have money to really enjoy an event. Yeah. Mike Watala is the executive editor of Soccer America, the uh, preeminent um, soccer publication in the United States. They've been around for more than 50 years. And you can catch them at socceramerica.com. I'm John Schrader, and this is Watch the Media. Um, the, the major clubs, the major leagues, uh, associations around the world, especially Europe, have been trying for a long time to get a foothold in the United States. You mentioned a little earlier about the international games that are coming this summer to the U.S. Uh, they all want a piece of the action and because Americans spend money and, and there's a lot of people here, 340 million people. Um, have they been pretty much successful in getting that foothold in the U.S. that they've, they've tried to get for a couple of decades or more? That's a good question. Um, Certainly, you had situations um, where a Manchester United would come and play a Real Madrid with, uh, you know, without their stars, and people were still paying 150 bucks or 200 dollars to watch what's basically a scrimmage, um, and they and and made a lot of money on that. But when it comes to these teams trying to do partnerships and, and teach our coaches how to coach and pretending that they really care about soccer in the United States, they come and go, you know, the Chelsea Castle deal and the youth soccer in, in, in North Carolina. That's all about selling shirts. You know, you had Bayern Munich um, do a partnership with, I think, a company called GPS, which if you Google, you'll find out they're no longer around, gotten all sorts of legal trouble. The, I, you know, and there, there's countless, I mean, you've got, you know, crappy teams in England that come over here and want to partner with the club to show that, you know, I do not think there's any club in the world where, a, you know, they sit around in Munich or, or, or London and they say, hey, you know, we really want to help American soccer get better. Let's, let's partner with them. It's all about selling shirts and, and selling tickets and, and everything. And it's always been my hope that, that when a team comes over here and sells tickets for 150 bucks, um, and their player, you know, their star players aren't playing and they treat it like a scrimmage that American fans will say, you know, we don't, we don't need that. We don't need to spend that kind of money. Um, but, you know, certainly America is always going to be a place that a frontier where they see the numbers. You know, you look at our youth soccer industry, uh, everybody wants a piece of that pie. And, and we're not the only ones. Obviously, Asia is very attractive to, um, to the European clubs as well. Huge interest on televised um, European soccer, English soccer, and in Asia. It's not just us, but, you know, it's just part of the business. 
So you can get most leagues um, in America now on television, mostly streaming. Um, I guess it's still a little difficult to get French games, but most of the rest of them are pretty readily available. Mm -hmm. Here's the question now, a young American soccer fan, let's say a 16 to 22 year old who knows how to stream the games and is, is he or she um, a Chelsea fan first and then a, um, a, 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 a New York fan second? Uh, where does MLS fit into the pecking order of these young fans who all know who the great stars around the world are and they can recognize them in a minute? No, that's a great question. And, and there's been huge progress on the um, with MLS. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Talking to a youth national team coach about 10 years ago, and he was telling me that all the kids talked about was hoping to play in Europe, you know, playing for this team, playing for Chelsea, playing for Bayern, et cetera, et cetera, playing in the EPL. And now it's changed because they've seen the players who start in MLS and who are playing and then maybe go over there. I'm not saying they're not thinking about going to Europe. But MLS has really become much more popular among younger players than um, than it had been in the past. The when MLS started in '96, I always said that even in '96, we had enough soccer fans in the United States to support a professional league. It was no longer like the original NASL back in the '70s, where it was a matter of converting Americans to become soccer fans. By the time MLS showed up. We had enough soccer fans, but we had competition from soccer around the world. Is a Club America, a Chivas fan, going to stay at home and watch Chivas on TV play Pumas? Or are they going to drive across town to watch the Galaxy, right? That was always the challenge. We're competing not only with other sports, with other pastimes. Um, and, you know, MLS has pulled it off. MLS has grown tremendously, uh, has built stadiums particularly the stadiums that are in areas where it's a cool thing to go to, right? Um, if you remember back in the days when it was all about, oh, let's get the youth teams out there, and uh, which was never going to work because you might get them out there for a game or two, but parents who are spending half the week on a soccer field aren't necessarily going to go to a pro game on a weekend. But now if you go to a Portland game and stuff, you see young people who, you know, maybe the guy's a soccer fan, he takes his girlfriend, maybe their girlfriend's a soccer fan, takes a boyfriend, you, you, you stop at a pub on the way, you know, you have this tremendous, you know, social situation. The atmosphere inside MLS stadiums is terrific. I mean, I went to see a Barcelona Champions League game while on vacation in, um, in Barcelona, in Spain, obviously. And um, the the atmosphere in MLS games is better than it was at Barcelona. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, but, you know, the, the Catalans are supposed to be kind of mellow and all that. And a lot of tourists go to the games. But um, it, it really has made a lot of progress. And to answer your question, that is filtered down to the kids. You know, they follow MLS now. So are the kids helping to drive that too? It's not the parents who are taking the kids. It's the, it's the young people who are driving an older generation to soccer. Is that happening? That could be, but I think mainly it's the, you know, 18 to 40 adults, but that's what your question makes is very important. It used to be that, um, you know, your kids playing youth soccer. So they're hoping that the kid encourages the parents to uh, take them to a game, which will work once or twice but you know as we all know uh, if we're parents that ultimately the parents are going to determine you know where their money goes and, and what they do and, and where they you know spend most of their free time um so you really have a generation now that grew up with the game and 
it's also interesting that how many soccer fans there are in the United States who didn't even play AYSO, maybe they didn't even play soccer, but got really into soccer because of the FIFA video game, the Champions League being on TV, and became real, I think, infatuated with the sport for probably a similar reason that you and I were, is that it's an international global sport that is constantly interesting, right? Like you have a Mo Salah at Liverpool, you have a you have a team in the Champions League that has players from Latin America and Africa and Europe. And um, because it's a global game, I think it makes it so interesting has really captured the imagination of, you know, of young Americans. More young Americans are going to Europe to play their trade, some of them as teenagers and some of them after they prove themselves a couple of years in, in MLS. Um, is the United States now in the same conversation with let's say South America in, in sending uh, great players around the world? And if not, what is that even a, a prospect? That's a good question too. I, not yet. Um, you know, the, you, you still have this incredible, um, you know, production of players in countries like Argentina where, um, you know, River Plate and Boca will sell their playmaker when he's, you know, 20, and then there's a next one that comes right and steps in. Uh, we're not there yet. You know, we're, we're not producing players one after another, after another, after another. The soccer culture in a place like Argentina and Brazil is, is still very much at a different level. And, and also you probably, you know, you can get into the socioeconomic situations where uh, the kids, these kids that come out of Argentina and Brazil, um, they, you know, there's such a competitive um, drive at a young age in soccer that, you know, might not quite be the same here. I'm not saying that you have to be from the favelas to be a great soccer player, um, but that soccer culture and that, and that um, pipeline, um, you know, we don't, we don't exactly have that here yet. Mike Wartala is the executive editor of Soccer America. I'm John Schrader. This is Watch the Media. Well, the the standard for women's football, soccer around the world, has been the United States of America for about 30 years, a little more than three decades. Uh, the Europeans are saying this is going to be the best European champions, uh, European uh, championship among women's teams uh, ever as they start their 16-team tournament. Uh, this week. Is the U.S. still the standard and uh, uh, and how quickly are the rest of the world, uh, is the rest of the world catching up to them? Yeah, I would say the U.S. is still the standard. I think what's fascinating about watching other countries um, improve on the women's side is they bring the same kind of style and, and playing culture that they're known for. You know, the Brazilian women play like Brazilians, uh, Spanish women play like Spaniards. And, and that in a way is an advantage for them um, because if you're involved in youth coaching in the United States, um, you tend to a lot of times have to instill certain qualities in players that you don't have to in those countries, right? Like if you're coaching um, young kids in America, now this isn't always the case. You might have kids in Latino communities who play on their own before they show up in an organized sport. But um, I remember when I was coaching and uh, you know the, the kids, they get the ball and they wanna to go to the other side and score as quickly as possible. And then you have to come up with variations of training games to 
to, to kind of encourage them to play a possessive game or, and encourage them to think about what they're going to do. Um, you don't have to do that in Spain or Brazil or Mexico because that's sort of ingrained. It's uh, the ball's mine and it's our team's ball and we're going to keep that. So, but but at the same time, the soccer culture in the United States keeps improving. And I think that's very much thanks to the um, soccer you can see on television and, um, you know, emulate the players. I, 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 I'll always believe that one of the most significant things that happened for American soccer was the Barcelona teams of Messi, Xavi, and Iniesta. Um, that was also coincided when, when we could see that on television. And the best three players in the world were about five, seven, five, eight. Um, this is something now that Americans were seeing um, after having an overbearing British influence um, and a you know, strong feeling that athleticism was so important. And all of a sudden, huh, you can be the world's best player and you don't have to be some big, you know, giant, fastest, biggest person around. So that kind of soccer culture really has made a difference. I mean, you look at players now and the skill level on the men and the women's side um, is tremendously improved over the past when, you know, it was good enough if you're a defender, you just had to be a defender. And, 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 and that wasn't good enough on the world stage. And, and now we're producing defenders who can play. I remember the criticism for, for so long was, on the one hand, the U.S., young, young athletes in the U.S., um, nutrition is better, training is better, facilities are better, resources are better than a lot of places, not everywhere, but, but then some or, or a lot of places. It was the technical soccer that separated the rest of the world from the U.S. We had players who can run and players who are athletic, and again, nutrition and resources and those kinds of things but the technical part of it needed to be improved. Is well, that yeah, I mean, we were, yeah. we were a Northern European centric soccer culture, which is, which really kept us, kept us back for a long, long time. You know, you, you had so many English coaches, you know, from a country that hadn't won anything since 1966 on their own soil that doesn't even hire English coaches, you know, in their own league um, playing a crude sort of, um, you know, straightforward athletic soccer. Now, the, the English national team program over the last 10 years has finally, you know, taken another step. You know, the Germans were always known for our athleticism and we had a lot, you know, we had a big German influence as well. The Germans, the difference between the Germans and the, and the, and the English was whenever something went wrong in Germany, when they didn't win something, they reevaluated. They realized, okay, we can't get by on athleticism or what they used to call the, the German virtues. Um, everybody's a good athlete in, uh, in, in international soccer. You know, it, it, it was the Latin type of teams that were the ones that we should have been looking at a long time ago, um, whether that's the Mediterranean countries or the, or the, the Latin American countries, South American countries. And now when you look at our league and MLS and almost every team has a Latin American playmaker, even our, Ang you know, our Anglo kids are playing soccer like, you know, with that type of skill that, that Latin soccer was known for. Um, and that was the big step that we had to make. I think some people might be surprised who haven't looked at Major League Soccer in the last few years to know that maybe some of those young people who used to go to Europe or other places when they were 18 or 19 years old from South America, from Central America, from, from Argentina and other places, Ecuador, Peru, are making a stop in the U.S. before they go someplace else. That's something that's emerged in this league over the last few years, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, I mean, they've, they've, we've had that a little bit. We had that in the past, but now for sure. So, 
you know, we talk a lot about um, how big and rich the European leagues are, but if you're not at one of the big clubs in Spain, um, you might not get your paycheck on time. I, I remember even in the early days of MLS, the, the, <laughs> the MLS had a good reputation in Latin America for you got paid on time. You know, you, you always got paid. Um, but yeah, the salaries have gotten, you know, gotten better, uh, you know, significantly better. Um, the scouting networks have gotten significantly better. The, the the type of talent that, and the culturally, you can make an argument that it's an easier adjustment in a lot of situations for Latin American players here than it might be, say, in Germany or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was talking to, so I was in Colombia once and I was amazed. Uh, this must have been, you know, six, seven years ago. Uh, we were going through customs in Cartagena and ended up talking to the guy for about five minutes about soccer while everybody behind us was was glaring at us and what that what he knew about mls was extraordinary because they followed the colombian players who had come to mls so that would have been the same for for young colombian players who had seen early on valderrama and later on the other ones who came um so yeah it's become a destination a very popular destination people you know love living in the united states i think another thing that might surprise people is if they learned that a, a club like LA FC is now uh, valued on the market higher than a middle of the road national hockey league team in these latest assessments, 700, 800 million dollars in value. And then the, the boat is rising. The tide is rising all of the boats in, in major league soccer. And one of the things that also is eye catching is that Apple is investing two and a half billion dollars over the next 10 years to show major league soccer games pretty stunning considering that 90 to $100 million a year is about what MLS was getting. What does it mean, all those uh, figures and the values being so much greater? The, the big difference with Major League Soccer and the, and, and the European leagues like the EPL, the Bundesliga to, to, to a lesser extent, because the Bundesliga doesn't have the foreign um, TV money that the EPL did, was the, it, the television money. Now, I I don't think this should lead to the ridiculous transfer fees that you see in, 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 in Europe, you know, that's just absurd, uh, $70,000, $70 million transfers and everything. But the one, the, the percentage of money that the, of revenue that comes from tickets um, in MLS would have been significantly higher than uh, EPL. I mean, you know, we, we really saw this during COVID when the English Premier League could probably do fine without fans because they make so much money from their television contract. Bundesliga a little less so, but I would estimate that even the Bundesliga, probably their ticket revenues, might only, probably less than half of what their total income is. Um, and, and to their credit, they have, they have lower prices. Whereas uh, in MLS, uh, they would be more reliant on that. And, you know, there's kind of a ceiling on that. There's only so much money you can make on, um, on tickets unless you're like the, you know, the NFL and you charge like crazy money. But so, you know, that extra money will take another step toward MLS being the league that, you know, Commissioner Don Garber talks about is competing with the, the, the top four or five leagues in the world to, um, you know, I, I don't want us to be like a ridiculous, um, you know, a league where, where, where things are just getting completely out of hand. And in a way, I don't think they will, because ironically, sports in America is very socialist. Um, you know, we have unfettered capitalism. 
in our society. Uh, Europe has much more socialism, but in Europe, their sports are unfettered capitalism. And uh, in the United States, they're very socialist, right? You have a yeah. draft where the, uh, the worst team gets to pick the best players. You have uh, luxury taxes on teams that make extra money on regional TV deals. You have basically the television pie is split, you know, something that you don't have in Spain, which is why uh, there's teams that don't make their payroll because Barcelona and Real Madrid hog everything. Um, and, and, you know, the, the Europeans are, are envious. The European leagues are envious of how well MLS and other American leagues are run when it comes to, you know, financial sort of responsibility. Um, you know, the Bundesliga, Bayern Munich has been the Bundesliga champion for 10 seasons in a row. I mean, I just, I, I do believe there's something to be said for the kind of parity you see in MLS. Yeah, I mean, on the on the matter of socialism, as we start wrapping this thing up, you know, the NFL is one of the great socialist society uh, or associations in in all of the world. And they're the richest, maybe the richest sports yeah. league in the world, certainly the best revenue producing sports league in the world. And they are that because um, from the biggest to the to the smallest, right, they take care of each other. And that's uh, to, to your point. That's that's why it works. You have salary caps. Mm hmm. You know, um, and so the, you know, I, I, I do believe that the, the owners and the leaders of Major League Soccer deserve a lot of credit um, for how the league has grown, um, the, how frugal they were in the beginning, which, which was frustrating because uh, we want to see things go faster and bigger stars come quicker. Um, but now they've grown to be, a, you know, a big league with, uh, with good stadiums and, and talented players. Um, and that's pretty that's pretty incredible when you think back to the days when we the league just got started or the days between the NESL and MLS when we didn't have pro soccer. Hey, I remember back in the first few years when two teams in Florida folded and and two people basically owned almost all the teams in the league. Anschutz owned half of them. Um, I, I worked in San Jose where we had an owner who was kind of a caretaker, and then Anschutz came in, and then they basically took the team to Houston. I mean, it, in the first 10 years, it was not a sure thing. Yeah. They came close to folding. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so anyway, so Mike, about 40 years ago or so, and I don't want to date you too much, but you're a college kid and you start writing about soccer and you start getting paid to write about soccer. And this is the, the early to mid eighties. And here you are still writing about soccer. Could you have imagined when you started in the mid eighties, writing about soccer that here we would be in 2022, talking about some of the things that we've been talking about, the assurance of a league, the world cup coming back here for a second time, the kind of money that's involved in, in this sport. Could you have imagined that? That's a good question. I mean, one of the things that I realize now that I'm 58 years old is that I was never very good about looking in the future. You know, I know some people will say what I, what, where am I going to be in five or 10 years? Um, I, I don't think I did a lot of that, but I don't, but I, but I do know that I, I wouldn't have been able to imagine this. I, I had seen, you know, I was old enough to follow the NASL. I lived in Hawaii where there was a team Hawaii. I lived in Dallas when I was a kid where they had the Dallas tornado. Uh, yeah, I, I was, a that was my team it was a Dallas tornado and they folded, you know, when you're a 10, 11 year old, 12 year old kid, that, that just doesn't make sense to you. You know, you, you followed this team for five to six years. You, you get happy when they win, you get sad when they lose. And, 
and then they just disappear. And you know, I went through that in Dallas. I went through that in Hawaii. Um, and then when I started as a career, you know, obviously there's enough international stuff to keep you interested and, and that you really enjoy and everything. Um, but it was very hard to imagine and very hard to have real faith in American professional teams having that longevity and that, you know, that fandom. I'm, you know, as a, as a professional journalist, I'm not a, a fan anymore like that. And, um, you know, I, I'm too old to all of a sudden become very emotional about a about a sports team. Um, but knowing that it's possible is, is great, you know, and knowing that a professional team in Major League Soccer is going to be around. Um, if you look at the besides the teams that folded the Miami Fusion and the Tampa Bay, it is remarkable the stability of Major League Soccer during these 26 years. I mean, absolutely remarkable if you look at um, the history of soccer and even other, you know, sports in America. Yeah, and, and they did wisely get rid of some names like the Dallas Burn and the San Jose Clash <laughs> and the Kansas City Wiz. So progress can be made in a number of ways. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, Mike, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks for getting us updated on what's going on in soccer. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Always great chatting with you. Mike Watala is the executive editor of Soccer America magazine. You can catch them at SoccerAmerica.com. I'm John Schrader. This is Watch the Media.